Well, it's clear to me we didn't give either Matthew or David nearly enough to talk about tonight. And uh, we appreciate David for uh, all of his efforts. All right. When you get called and the microphone is brought to you, please stand as a sign that you're being recognized by this assembly to speak. And then when you're done, you can return the microphone to Logan and be seated. And we know then that David can have an opportunity to respond. We'll start here with Alan Bonifay. That was great, David. I really enjoyed it. Uh, actually, I think that uh, minus Bengal's cigar, you should spend the rest of your life explaining this stuff to us. <laughs> I'll be glad to go without that cigar. Yeah. I have two questions. Uh, so, what is the majority text? We talked about this. You didn't have much time to address this. And what is its validity today? And to go along with that, I'm one, Pickering's main argument, or at least one of his important arguments, was the majority text should be used because this is the, the majority of the manuscripts that were being used regularly results in the majority text. And these older manuscripts that were stuck off in a clay jar somewhere were not being used. That's why they were put in a clay jar somewhere. So I wonder what your answer is to that. I'm sure you have a good answer to that. And do you want the other question now or when you finish that? Well, let's go ahead and hear it. So do we need to all just cave in to Glenn and start using the New American Standard now? <laughs> uh, or the ESV? Well, I'll, uh, I'll be glad to address that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I, I purposely did not include the majority text for time's sake, but I went ahead and prepared slides because I knew you'd be asking about it. <laughs> but I asked you to anyway because I told you. But, uh, but anyway, uh, after all this happened in the mid-20th century, there were people who began to dissent against Westcott and Hort and the critical text that they devised on the basis of older manuscripts. So the idea is that Alan's talking about is that there's the Textus Receptus, as we said, and then there's the Westcott Hort text, or the now Nestle all on UBS text. And the majority text position is another view that's kind of come about since Westcott and Hort, a lot of it based back on Bergen, Dean Bergen's arguments, and that's the idea that we should go with the majority text. So as I can try to be succinct, as succinct as I possibly can here, that the, the NA UBS text seeks to evaluate every variant on a one-by-one -one basis and assess what is original and what is not on the basis of a set of criteria that we haven't really gone into tonight. Now, the, text, or the, the majority text basically makes it a statistical enterprise. It says if uh, such and such a passage says Jesus Christ in 4,000 manuscripts and says Christ Jesus in, a, in 1,500 manuscripts, then we should say Christ Jesus, or whichever one I said was the, the 4,000. <laughs> so we should go with the 4,000 times. Whichever the majority says is what we should take. The problem with that, and that sort of skirts into your other question, is that that assumes that the majority in these late manuscripts, and they are the late manuscripts, it's the Byzantine manuscripts. Let me go to the next slide here. It's this 
Uh, let me get past these fellows here. Uh, it's this group of manuscripts that's really the majority here. Uh, vastly, the biggest portion of the 5,600 plus that I mentioned is the Byzantine family of manuscripts. The problem with that is, is they've, as they've discovered older and older manuscripts, and especially with the papyri now back into the second and third centuries, there's not a trace of the Byzantine text type in those, I shouldn't say there's not a trace, there is a trace, but not as a, uh, not as a constellation of variants. There are different variants, but not a grouping of variants that fit the Byzantine family. So the idea being that even though the Byzantine text type may be the majority of manuscripts that exist today, there's no evidence that it was the majority before the ninth century. So when is the majority, when, what majority, what, if we're gonna go with the majority, what, what century are we gonna go with as far as the majority is concerned? Did I answer the question? Yeah. Of uh, the first two. Do we have to use the New American Standard? Yeah, yeah, I know. I'll, I'll think about how to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> the truth of the matter is I've told people a lot. If I was a young fellow and starting over, I would, go with, I would use the NASB. I've, I'm impressed with the ESV. I like the ESV, and I know there's a couple of young preachers here that use it, and I have no qualms with that whatsoever. There's just a place or two in the ESV that I'm not sure about and I'm not comfortable with, and I'll just tell you what it is, mainly uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 versus uh, the part about the covering, and, uh, and uh, one other that doesn't come, maybe it's Romans 10 in the Confession. I don't remember right now off the top of my head, I'm sorry, but if I were starting over and I didn't have to learn it all again, I would use the NASB. I'm not telling you all, the rest of you all, what to do. That's just what I would do. But I'm not going to because I'm not going to start over. <laughs> In the 90s, I changed to the New King James Version, and that was, a, that was a change. And even after changing and preaching out of it for 30, 25 years, uh, when I get up to quote, the old version, the King James, still comes out of my mouth. And I don't want to garble that up further by adding on the NASB. But uh, that doesn't mean there are no faults with the NASB or the ESV. Uh, really what we're doing when we're changing translations is we're basically just changing for uh, a different set of faults, a different set of weaknesses. And that's just going to be the nature of translation. That's just all there is to it. And uh, so that's my answer to that question. All right, we've got several questions lined up. Smith Bivens and then Austin Maddox. Lots of ground to cover here. You did an excellent job. I appreciate that, David. Uh, maybe take a little bit of time, and if you don't feel like you can do it justice, then we'll go on to somebody else. Address the idea that Bart Ehrman and people like him try to use the this uh, existence of variations as propaganda against the authority of the New Testament. And maybe talk about Daniel Wallace and Bart Ehrman, their discussions. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, I'm not quite as competent to respond to a question like that as somebody like Daniel Wallace, who has debated Bart Ehrman. You may not know much about Bart Ehrman, and I won't go into a lot of history about his background, but he started out as a conservative uh, evangelical and ended up a complete skeptic. And uh, I suppose he would have gone down that road regardless of what course of life he took, but when he got into textual criticism, he claimed that that was somehow or another uh, the basis for his 
uh, departure from his former views that the scriptures are the inspired word of God. Now, there are a lot of other people who have studied textual criticism who have come to the exact opposite conclusion. And I'm not a textual critic, and for people watching on YouTube, I'm not a textual critic, and I don't claim to be one. I'm just a guy who's read some on it, and uh, I, it's only strengthened my faith, I can tell you that right now. But what Smith brings up here is the fact that uh, Bart Ehrman is a fellow who is a professor, I think, in North Carolina, who has destroyed the faith of many a young person going to college. People who have been raised in denominational churches believe strongly in the inspiration of the Bible, just like some of our own kids, and they go to his classes and they come out a complete skeptic. And uh, there are some debates online on YouTube between Wallace and Urban that will give you everything you need to know about that. But Urban uh, is a complete skeptic. I mean, there is almost nothing that could come about as far as I'm able to tell from what he says, and I, may, I don't want to mischaracterize him, but it seems like there is nothing that would convince him other than just to have the actual original documents from Paul drop out of heaven, or that somehow or another, uh, the New Testament would supposedly be like apologists for the Quran claim that it is, but it isn't, claim that it is, but somehow or another it's never changed all through the centuries of time. And that's not true of the Quran or the New Testament, at least in terms of the copies, of course. And uh, uh, I believe that when we look at, look at and I wanna ha I'm going to have a closing statement, I guess we'll talk some about that, uh, that uh, is, is important to point out how that the variants that really make any difference at all, and, and really don't even then, are so minute and so few. I mean, in view of the fact that there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of variants known today, it's only like 0.01% or 0.1%, I've, I've got the numbers here, that really make any difference. And on those passages where it's really not sure which is the right way, there's not a single passage that really affects any biblical doctrine because on a passage where there might actually be real question about what the original was, that same doctrine is addressed elsewhere many more times than one in the scripture. And I think it's a great question because these kinds of issues, as I was telling someone earlier this week, uh, we've been able to ignore this for years, us guys that are a little older, because a lot of it's been stuck away in books that are a little obscure to a lot of people, but now this stuff is all over the internet. And this, uh, this deals with, this pertains or impinges upon the very importance of the inspiration and preservation of the Bible. Am I answering the question? Yes, you have. All right, we gotta go to Austin Maddox and then Glenn Osborne. Thank you very much. I, I feel a little silly because earlier, or last week, I bought a new King James Version, brand spanking new, really nice leather bound, and, and now I, I guess I have to return it. No. <laughs> um, my, question, my question actually is this. Because, uh, as you said, you use New King James. Um, I've made a transition to New King James having used the Old King James. With the evidence that we have, is there for lack of a better term, a responsible way to do that in light of the fact that it was based on Texas Receptus? And so that's question number one. Question number two. Uh, a okay. responsible way to do what? Um, for textual variants or um, I, I, you talked about footnotes. Uh, 
Um, should we consistently or constantly acknowledge the differences between uh -huh. those? Is there, a, is there a responsible way to use um, translations that are based off of, off of those older texts? I'll, I'll just I, I, see, I see what you mean. Actually, your question is uh, question number two in the list that I put at the beginning, I believe, or something like it. Uh, well, you know, like I said, I've preached out the New King James Version for 25 years, and I don't change because of the reasons I said. But uh, uh, yes, those variants are there, and I always, we always notice them when we're studying a passage. But unless it really makes a big difference in some particular matter, I generally don't bring it out. What's the point, other than just to show, hey, you know, look, look here, you know. And if, it's, if it doesn't really make any difference about the teaching, and so much of it really doesn't, like the one I put up here a while ago, really about the boats, what different, I'm not going to spend time in my sermon highlighting that. But I know you're probably asking about more significant ones, so if it's really something significant, I may bring it out and, and, and call attention to it and uh, you know, address it, whatever it is. I, you know, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not. So for example, um, recently um, I was in a class in which they used the NASB and we were in Acts chapter 2 and in verse 47 um, in the Texas Receptus it has the word ecclesia oh. that they were and, and that may be a little bit lengthier of a conversation to no, have no. but in the NASB it does not it says that they were added to their number or something like that I forget the exact so right. that would be one of those situations that yeah. I was thinking about well, yeah, I mean, Acts 247 from the King James, New King James, you know, we've shown for years that that is the first time the church is spoken of as an existing entity. And the newer versions say they were added, uh, the Lord added them to the number, or some don't the exact quotation. Now, that's not a translational difference. It's not them using the same Greek to translate a different way. The difference is the Greek that's being translated. So the manuscript that those versions, uh, the, man, the, 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 the text that those versions are being translated from are formulated from manuscripts that say they were added to the number. So, you know, I still can prove that the church was established in Acts chapter 2. Uh, if you want another 30-minute sermon, I can do that. <laughs> 10 minutes maybe, but, uh, but uh, yeah, that, that's, that's one of those passages that, you know, and when you first see it, you think, well, they've taken the church out of there. You know, but, that's, but if you keep reading Acts, you find out, no, they haven't taken it. If they wanted to get rid of it, they should have taken it out everywhere. And they didn't. And that was not their motive. It's because they're basing it on older manuscripts. Glenn Oswald. First of all, thank you very much. <laughs> I knew you'd appreciate that. <laughs> that's not why I did it. No, I know, I know, I know. Yeah. Um, no, there's, there's two things that I wanted to note. One is, I think we, um, with the onset of the uh, internet and the access to a lot of these copies, I think we can look up a lot of these texts and, and that are helpful to us. Uh, specifically, the history of Mark 16, 9 through 20, mm -hmm. the regular ending, which I believe is beyond dispute that it should be included in the text. Um, uh, and the, some of those textual variants like, like that. But most people, like you said, don't understand that whenever it comes to major textual variations, there are very few. 
se- Lightfoot says seven or nine, you know. Yeah, There's not very many at all. Yeah. Well, the others are just spelling and other kinds of things. Word so, order. right. Some of it doesn't even show up in English. Right, exactly. Which brings me to another point. A lot of times, I think even our brethren, because of the way we preach and hold up a Bible and say this is the Word of God, people really believe that the rest of the world translates it from English into those other languages. And that is such a mistake, you know. We've got to take, take, show them that it, it goes back to that original thing. Uh, another thing, with the United Bible Society text has a textual, Metzger published, uh, I don't know if they've revised it any at all, but the, a, a textual criticism along with its uh, text, the Aslan text. Oh, you mean the, the textual commentary. Right, the textual yeah. commentary, which shows you which families those textual variants come from. And uh, I think that that's very helpful for those who are really examining certain passages for doctrinal truth, that, that you really need to get that close you know, into it, that you want to do it. There are textual commentaries that will tell you why those textual, where they come from, and, and can really trace it back to see whether it's a strong or a weak argument. Um, and I just want to, I'm, I'm just so thankful that the New King James Version and the New American Standard Version are very similar, a lot more similar than people realize. Yes, that's right. And we, we have, it, it just opens up a lot just to use the New King James. So I'm not saying everybody should use New American Standard, although you should. But uh, I think the new, the new King James is not a bad translation. No, it's not. But I, it, there are a lot of things I wish they would have gone. I wish they'd have yeah. gone with, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you. Here. No, no, no. I, Bishop, they should have translated it overseer. Right. Things like that. Right. But in right. general, it's a good update. Yeah. But I'm thankful for your talk. I think we need to explain to our people the history of the Bible and the, why we have a reason to be confident and not let people out in the world shake the faith of people. Listen, there's only about seven major textual variations, and you can study those and yep. get answers. Yeah, what Glenn's talking while you're going to the other guy, uh, what Glenn's talking about, I'll put a picture. Yeah. These are the two... Uh, Textual commentaries I recommend. The one on the left is the one he just referenced. Uh, Philip Comfort's the New Testament text and commentary, translation commentary, about that thick. And basically, it analyzes very not all of them, but many of the manuscript variants and the differences between the Greek texts. And basically, lays out in just a short paragraph the reason why they chose this variant over that one. So it's possible to get information. It's not. It's not in a deep, dark, black hole mystery. Uh, that information's out there, and you can find a lot of it right here. I, we've talked, you and I have talked about this in the past, that for people who especially have not had an opportunity to learn Koine, probably the best way to approach any of these kinds of issues is just to have four, five, or six translations, and now on the computer you can just put them all side by side and have a bunch of tabs open and just compare and read the same verse in three, four, or five mm-hmm. translations. And if you see dramatic differences, then there can be a textual issue or just a Greek phrase that translators are struggling to render into English. Mm-hmm. If you were to give three, four, five that you think would be good for that kind of an exercise, what three, four, five versions would you recommend? Right, I like you. I'm glad you asked that. Uh, all translations are not equal. Don't take me. I want to be clear. 
Tonight, I'm not up here to just give a blanket endorsement to any old translation that's been made out there. Uh, the English-speaking world, especially Americans, have become translation fanatics. And part of it, a big part of it, is driven by profits for the publishing companies. Now, I'm not against profits. I'm not a Marxist. I believe that it's perfectly okay for them to make a profit selling Bibles. But it's also a reality that they are driven by that. And so to, have, to, to make sales, you've got to have novelty. And that leads to the second point, is the American people love novelty. And at some point, it gets ridiculous, really. And I think we've reached that point. But to answer Shahe's question, hey, the King James Bible, if you're not considering variant issues, the King James Bible is an excellent um, formal equivalent word, literal, I won't say word for word, I don't like that expression, but uh, formal equivalent translation, which means that it's basically as much as English will permit following the structures and grammar of the Greek. Uh, a, a translation like the NIV is relaxing those constraints in order, sacrificing that on purpose to gain readability and put it into English that is American English or, well, New International English. And so, again, uh, I'd start with the King James Bible, lay it down next to the New King James. Then after that, I would go to the New American Standard Bible and put that down next to it and the ESV with that. Uh, that starts to push the limit for me in terms of what I recommend uh, to do a good, close, tight study of the scriptures. But uh, question number three was, how do we know when they're appropriately translated? Well, that depends on the translation. And that's why I say I don't endorse all of them wholeheartedly, but the few that I just mentioned, compare them, line them up. You're going to notice that occasionally you're going to find something that is not there in the new versions, that's there in the KJV or NKJV, or vice versa. And a lot of times you're going to find differences uh, of, of translation. And so if one of them is really out of, the uh, really out of line with the others, then you might ought to lean toward the, toward the ones that, are, that generally agree. And uh, I think that, we're ready for your closing, closing yeah. statement. Okay. Well, uh, um, in his book, Introdu Introduction to New Testament Textual Criticism, page 81, J. Harold Greenlee says that the traditional text, the TR, is not a bad or heretical translation. It presents the same Christian message as the critical text. That would be the USB, NA, Westcott, Hort, critical text, whatever you want to call it. And so his point here is that um, even though the KJV or the Textus Receptus has things that, according to the modern text, have been added in later centuries, it's not the kinds of things that are absolutely heretical or wrong. A lot of times it is just filling out meaning or filling out the sense. But I would add the reverse, if I can accommodate Mr. Greenlee's comment here and turn it around and say the same thing in the other direction. The critical text, or the US, UBS text, is not a bad or heretical text. It presents the same Christian message as the, textual, as the traditional text. Now, because of the differences, we as preachers, we as students of the Bible, may need to rethink and restudy the way we study and preach certain passages. But the same truths are there, friends. 
There is not that kind of difference that some of the KJV-only people try to make it out to be and claim that the decisions that the King James translators made whenever they selected Beza versus Stephanus was inspired. If we go down that road, we have lost the truth. I'm sorry, but I am very unimpressed by some of the radicalism that I see out of some of these King James-only ideas expressed on the internet and in various books over the years. I'm going to close. Again, this is kind of a little bit of a, not too long, but I wrote this little thing a few months ago, a few years ago, I guess, for the CE. In 1881, Westcott and Hort published Introduction to New Testament in the Original Greek. In the introduction of this work, these scholars discuss the degree of impact that the variants have on the New Testament. They state that for the most of the New Testament, about 87%, there are no variations at all in the copies. None. In other words, most of the New Testament has been translated by hand through 14, 15 centuries, virtually unimpacted by copying errors. That is amazing. Now, the totality of variants, say Westcott and Hort, affect therefore only one-eighth of the whole, or the other 13%, uh, aside to the 87 that has no variation. They add that after excluding variants, including differences of spelling, which are easily resolved, only 1 60th of the New Testament is affected, or 2% of the whole. Then, once all other variants are discounted that are no more significant than spelling errors, the part of the New Testament affected by substantial variation is only about 1 1,000th of the whole, or here's that number I was trying to remember a while ago, 0.1%. Which is, let, which is one tenth of one percent. Thus, variations in the copies that have important impact on the meaning affect only one tenth of one percent of the entire New Testament. Every passage in the New Testament that falls into this category involves doctrines that are clearly taught elsewhere in the New Testament scriptures. So I conclude with this statement. In other words, even in this one one thousandth part no doctrine of Christ and the apostles have been destroyed, deleted, corrupted, lost, beyond recovery. We have the truth in the Bible, my friends. And we ought to be thankful that we have both texts because the iron sharpens iron. Whenever scholars in this camp compare with scholars in this camp, you find the truth somewhere in that debate process. And we should be thankful for where we are.